Welcome to the podcast. Today we have uh, William, William Large from the University of Gloucester talking to us about Heidegger. Hi, Patrick. It's uh, University of Gloucestershire. Ah, okay. Everybody says University of Gloucester, but it's yeah. University of Gloucestershire. My mistake. My mistake. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, you're here today to talk, us, to talk to us about um, your book, Heidegger's Being in Time, which came out in 2008. And... Um, uh, I just we have a lot of questions for you today today from the students. Uh, so what I want to ask you first is that um, and what struck me about it is that well you've uh, there's lots of introductions to being in time um, and there's lots of introductions to various books in philosophy. But I'm just wondering what motivated you to do this. I mean why why do you think this book is a why do you think being in, in time is such an important book and worthy of the attention? Uh, I've been teaching being in time for several years uh, in different universities. And uh, students always found the book quite difficult first off. Uh, of course, an introduction doesn't replace reading the text itself. But um, I thought also that many of the introductions to being in time were slanted from a kind of analytic perspective, especially influenced very much by Dreyfus. So I thought it'd be interesting to write a book, an introduction to being in time that came from a different tradition, a continental tradition especially my reading of Levinas and uh, Blanchot. Uh, and I, th and I, I mean, I, I know there's a big industry of writing introductions and textbooks uh, to philosophical texts, but I think as long as you make it aware to the reader that they have to find their own way, and reading an introduction isn't a substitute for, uh, as I said, reading the original, then I think these, these books can have a uh, positive uh, effect and influence. Okay, so... Um... Now, uh, as you said, uh, as you said there, it's, it's a, it is really a, a difficult book being in time. There's no getting around that. Um, but it is worthy of uh, persevering with. So, mm. I mean, well, let's, let's start with the title. I mean, it's called Being and Time. So, uh, why is this question of, uh, of being so important for Heidegger? Or what's motivated him to pursue this fundamental question, do you think? Ah, well, that's like the hardest question uh, you could have asked me, Patrick. Are you, are you asking me, what is the meaning of being? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, as you know, Heidegger himself, I mean, being in time, even though it's a, a, a long work, is a preparatory work, and Heidegger never actually gets to the uh, meaning of being. So uh, and you might add that his, that his whole philosophical career never finally answers what the meaning of being is. I think the clue is really of the title of the book is at the opening in the excerpt when Heidegger talks about the excerpt from Plato's Sophist, I think, where the stranger uh, says an answer to a question that he doesn't. Uh, he thought he knew what the meaning of being was, but now he doesn't. He doesn't. He's not so sure. And Heidegger wants to say that our our perplexity is twofold. Not only do we not know what the answer to the meaning of being is, but we don't even know what the question is. So the aim of being in time is not to answer the question, what is the meaning of being, though we have certain clues that it has to do with time, uh, and that's the title of the book, of course, but it's to convince us that the question itself is worthy of our 
uh, attention. Okay, um, and uh, yeah, so uh, I suppose that's, I mean, that's what a lot of scholars say, isn't it? That, I mean, Heidegger's innovation, I guess, if you like, and his contribution to understanding uh, human beings is that he says that we have this sort of temporal dimension. I mean, mm. yeah, so I mean, we are what he calls uh, ecstatic time, which is a technical term, mm. I guess, but it's basically the idea that in some sense uh, our being, our, our existence is is, mm. is is temporally elongated. Would that be fair to say? Or... Yeah, I think so. I mean, essentially at the heart of being in time, though it's, it's kind of there in the background rather than uh, uh, at the foreground, is ontological difference, which is that we cannot understand being in the same way that we understand beings. And part of the way of understanding that difference is is in terms of time. I really like um, Levinas's gloss on uh, being in Otherwise and Being, uh, which uh, he says that in one sense, the difference between being and beings is to be thought of as a difference between um, verb and noun. So being expresses a kind of verbal or adverbial sense, and beings are, are nouns and adjectives. That kind of grammar, I think, it kind of captures somehow the essence of the difference between being and beings. In being in time, uh, Heidegger understands being, as you say, in terms of time, but he wants to distinguish between time as clock time, and clock time has to do with beings, uh, like tables and chairs, uh, whereas um, being is a more fundamental notion of time for Heidegger. You might call it live time, if you like, though he tends to try and avoid that expression. Uh, the sense of time you have in your everyday life, and Heidegger wants to say that, that that notion of time, everyday time, is the clue to thinking about being. But it's only a clue. I mean, he doesn't really, if you, I don't think, really develop it in being in time. And as you know, being in time is a fragment. He never he never completes it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's that's interesting. So the the opposition seems to be well, as I understand it, he's really worried about what you call the ontological difference or the idea that mm. a human being. What he calls Dasein can be understood as as a thing, I guess, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whereas, I mean, yeah. So you can understand a thing, a table, a chair, mm. definitively in terms of pro- its properties and its qualities. Whereas mm. uh, the human being, if it's temporal, is in some sense, uh, it's it's only understood actively, I guess. It's not. It can't be understood uh, as reduce reducible to a thing. Yeah, I mean, clearly, uh, human beings can be understood objectively. If I go and visit my doctor, I want my doctor to treat me as a thing. Mm. Uh, but my doctor might, when before he starts looking at me, uh, he might actually ask me, how, how, how am I? How's it going? And I would say when he's asking me that question, he's asking me about my being. And that's quite a different question. And it's, as you notice, it has that kind of adverbial verbal sense. How are things going with me? And what Heidegger wants to say is that that fundamental notion of being as a way of being, uh, rather than a how, rather than a what, uh, is not, cannot be reduced to any kind of uh, objective description. Uh, so he has to kind of convince us of the difference, that kind of difference. But I think possibly the more controversial aspect of Heidegger's argument is, is that he doesn't just want to convince us of that difference, but he wants to uh, give priority to the verbal or adverbial sense of being and, and argue that that's a kind of fundamental ontology from out of which uh, another way of thinking about being as objects uh, comes from. Of course, in the, as Western philosophy historically progressed, 
we have the inversion of that. So we tend to think the objective account of being is the true one and the adverbial or verbal sense of being is somehow merely just subjective. Okay, so, I mean, that that uh, allows us to uh, lead on to, um, I mean, this, this, this term which I mentioned was Dasein. I mean, this is one of the words mm. Heidegger is, is famous for, uh, I guess, uh, coining in being in time. Mm. And it's... Uh, uh, I think I guess to understand this this book, you have to understand what he means by this uh, this term Dasein, and you've already alluded to mm. it. So, um, uh, when Heidegger says Dasein, uh, what is he trying to do? Do you think? Well, I know. I mean, one of the things that people remark about when they first start reading and being in time is how difficult it is. Yes. I do think that all original philosophy is difficult because it undermines our presuppositions, but also Heidegger tries to uh, use a different kind of vocabulary. Uh, so uh, he'll tend to go back to more everyday words or he'll use neologisms. Uh, but he does that, I think, for good reasons, which is to dislodge us from certain philosophical prejudices. So rather than using the technical Latinate term existence, he uses the more ordinary German expression, Dasein. But of course, hidden in that is Sein itself, which is the German for being. And so, you know, it's a useful word for, for Heidegger. What he's, what he's um, trying to allude to here is that for he's trying to get away from thinking about human beings anthropologically. Uh, you know, again, going back to your original uh, statement that, you, you know, you, you can, of course, define human beings in terms of any, like any other kind of object. You could, for example, as Aristotle does, define human beings as rational animals. But, but what Heidegger wants to capture with the notion of Dasein is the way in which we exist in the world, and Heidegger wants to say there's something peculiar about the way in which uh, we as human beings exist in, that, in the world. There's something peculiar about our being, and Dasein names that 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 way of being. So Dasein doesn't name an individual uh, with certain properties or attributes. Rather, it, it, for Heidegger, it names a special way of being. Okay, I mean, that's interesting because one of the I think one of the perennial difficulties I think um, uh, that I find my students have when trying to understand mm. this notion of Dasein or what he calls being in the world is that they constantly ask me, does he mean the individual or does he mean the subject when he says Dasein? So um, I, I don't think he technically does mean that, but it's not something that's he, he disavows, would you say? No, he. I mean, it is very confusing because, of course, what is peculiar to the way of being of human beings for Heidegger is that we that is the notion of individuality, minus. So um, yeah. for each of us, our being is for Heidegger is a, is a question and issue for us individually. Uh, so you, Patrick, have to face the meaning of your being and I, William, have to face the meaning of my being and each of us has to face it uh, individually. So so. Being, in some sense, for Heidegger, is individuated. So it might appear that when he's talking about uh, Dasein, he is talking about individuals. But I would say that that really he, what he's talking about is the, that the way of being of human beings is different from the way of being, for example, of uh, tables and chairs or supernova, but also for Heidegger, different from the way of being of animals. And so there's a peculiar way of being in which humans are, or humans be, if you like. That doesn't sound a bit strange. And the the word Dasein describes that way of being. Okay, yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, so, in, I mean, there's, there is definitely this tension, I think. Um, mm. if, 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 if Heidegger is saying, like, that we have this, uh, 
interior life, or as you say, what is it? What's it called? Is it, is it called Yemenekite? He calls it. The, the sort of, yeah, yeah, mindness. I think mindness. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this idea of interiority. So he's not disavowing yeah. that or saying that we don't have that. I guess mm. he's just saying that it's not paramount. It's not something that's uh, essential to what we are. Yet it's something we all experience. Um, it, it, it's it's it, yeah, because on another level, he's also saying there's a there's a very generic dimension to this. I mean, he's he's almost kind of a universalist, I think. Would you say when he's describing uh, Dasein? You know, it's not. Yeah, I mean, he's go on. Sorry, I interrupt you. Yeah, I mean, he's, it, the section of this section of being in time, which uh, describes Dasein's way of being, is called the analytic. And of course, uh, Heidegger's there is mirroring Kant's uh, use of the term in Critique of Pure Reason, the transcendental analytic, uh, which describes the fundamental categories by which human beings uh, think about objects. Of course, Heidegger's going to, he's rejecting uh, Kant's more cognitive approach, but nonetheless, in being in time, Kant is doing transcendental phenomenology. He's attempting to undercover the fundamental structures of human existence, which would be true of any human being, universally so. Now, there's no doubt I would say that one of the reasons that being in time is a fragment is that later Heidegger rejects this kind of transcendental method. It becomes much more an historical thinking. Okay, yeah, I mean, this is a this is another uh, another very difficult aspect of this. I mean, Heidegger he's he's, he's influenced by phenomenology. He's influenced by theology. Mm. He's influenced mm. by. Um, well, by, by, by some life philosophies, uh, he's influenced mm. by Kant. Um, in terms of his method, what, what, what do you think he's doing? I mean, he's somewhere between what we call phenomenology and hermeneutics, I guess. So, do you, yeah. Do you think that's a fair I would say that, yeah? yeah, sorry, I keep interrupting you. Yeah, okay. I would say that, that, uh, essentially Heidegger is a phenomenologist. I mean, there's a long, long description in Being in Time in the introduction about the the meaning of phenomenology. Also, you know, Heidegger is a Searle student, and I would say that uh, uh, in terms of his biography, phenomenology had a profound effect upon him and was the condition for him to uh, to be able to write philosophy in an original way. Uh, so I think, and I think Heidegger always never gives up the idea that he's a phenomenologist. And I understand phenomenology in a very crude way as an attempt to... Um, that a philosopher must stick to the way in which things appear. Uh, uh, you know, you have to describe how how uh, how things appear, and you uh, discover the underlying structure of uh, existence through how things show themselves. So I think Heidegger always sticks to that method. Um, the, the the hermeneutical dimension is that um, is linked to Heidegger's project that of the notion of forgetfulness of being. So, as I said at the beginning, for Heidegger, uh, we we um, we no longer even understand the question of being, let alone uh, have an answer to it. And the reason for that is the tradition that we exist in, which has closed off certain possibilities of thinking. Uh, so, you know, we might take the meaning of being for granted, so it's not a serious question, or we might think that we already know the meaning of being, uh, existential quantifier, for example, in logic. So. So Heidegger has to get us to see has to get us to see this tradition that he thinks is uh, excluding certain possibilities, certain pathways for us. Uh, but that tradition has become so natural to us that it's not it's not visible to us. So the hermeneutical dimension is is uh, to get us to see how our tradition 
is, if you like, biased or prejudiced in certain ways and preventing us from actually seeing the things uh, that are there right in front of us. So being in time is a phenomenology of the everyday. So Heidegger must accept, must, for his argument to work, he must believe that we all have an experience of being. Um, otherwise, how could being in time start? But that experience we don't take seriously or we can't think through it because of the tradition that's handed down to us. So there's a twofold movement in being in time, a phenomenology of the everyday, uh, and on top of that, a hermeneutics of the tradition, which is uh, allows us to see what is shown through that phenomenology. On the whole, being in time is, is you know, mostly phenomenology of the everyday. Uh, there's, there are hermeneutic critiques of Descartes, for example, in in being in time, quite long, extended uh, critiques, which most people don't read. Uh, and Heidegger did envisage writing much more fundamental uh, in the second part of being in time. She didn't publish uh, hermeneutical discussions of, of the history of philosophy. Okay. But you could say that they came out, those came out in his lectures later on. So Does that make I, yes, I think, you know, it makes perfect on. sense. But I mean, uh, with regard to that phenomenology of everyday life that you're talking about, I mean, I think sort of, mm. it, it sort of brings us to the more most famous uh, parts of uh, being in time. You know, mm. I mean, like so uh, he has what you call, as you alluded to, the existential analytic, and I mean, there's so many parts mm. of that. The most famous mm. is where Heidegger talks about authenticity and inauthenticity, and he talks yeah. about, about the idea of the day self. So. I think some of the mm. recurring questions that we get about this book would regard that as, uh, I mean, how, 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 how well, what is, um, I mean, what is this idea of authenticity and, and how is it, how does it contravene mm. the, this idea of uh, inauthenticity or what Heidegger calls they self? Yeah, I mean, I think you first have to think about this question in terms of the methodology of being in time itself. Methodology, I mean, I just mean the possibility that the book could ever have been written by Heidegger. Uh, and um, if Heidegger's argument is that um, we have forgotten the meaning of being, ultimately the source of that for Heidegger must be the everyday itself. Uh, so how is it that we're dominated by past ways of thinking? How is it that we can't see things that are, that, are, that, are, that are right there in front of us? But mostly, as Heidegger says, we, we think every, the way that everybody else thinks. Um, so, and this for Heidegger is not a criticism of uh, individuals per se. It, it belongs to the very way in which human beings are, that they, they tend to think uh, the way that everybody else thinks, tends to experience the world in the way that everybody else experiences the world and, and so on. But if there wasn't a possibility of interrupting that discourse, uh, the they, the they, the they self, as Heidegger describes it, then the very possibility of writing something like being in time would not happen. So, so Heidegger has to find it, has to um, demonstrate a way in which uh, it is possible for an individual to face their uh, their 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 being, uh, because Heidegger, as at the start of being in time will say that the clue or the path into the question of being is via that being whose being is an issue for them, whose existence is, a, is an issue for them. And he claims that that's unique to human beings. You know, so uh, I, I have a sense not just of myself as an object, but also I have a sense of my life. What is the meaning of my life? What is the direction of my life? Also, I have a sense of whether I am fulfilling my goals or projects or possibilities or I'm falling away from them. So 
So the notion of authenticity for for uh, Heidegger is the possibility uh, that every human being has to face their own uh, existence, their own way of being, their own possibility of being, and that's what Heidegger means by 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 authenticity. And if it weren't if we weren't capable of this uh, way of relating to ourselves, then something like being in time could not have been written. Something like philosophy would not be possible for us. Right. So, uh, yeah. So, as I, if I understand what you're saying, I mean, is it that, that, you know, the inauthentic is not necessarily Heidegger saying, you know, it is bad to be authentic, inauthentic or it is bad to participate in the day self. Uh, and it is uh, equally, he's not saying, you know, be authentic. I mean, these are just, Sort of modalities of uh, of our Dasein, our being in the world of, of what we are. Yeah, I, I think that's a really nice way of putting it in terms of modalities. Generally, our general mode of being is inauthentic, that because it belongs to our way of being that we're absorbed in the world. You know, I'm absorbed in my projects. Uh, you know, so today we're talking about we're, we're talking about Heidegger on uh, on Skype. So uh, I'm I'm absorbed in the task at hand. I'm not I'm not thinking about the meaning of my being. I am now. Uh, <laughs> and now I feel dread and anxiety. I'm wasting my time. But when I'm absorbed in a task or doing something, then my my being is not an issue. And that's that's if you think about it, generally the way we are. So inauthenticity isn't some moral failing. It's what it is to be human. So authenticity is is a modification, to use your expression, of inauthenticity. Okay. Uh, you know, yeah. it's, it arises out of inauthenticity yeah, when there are moments in our life where we get an external shock which uh, uh, throws us out of our normal way of doing things and we and in that shock we face our being yeah one of the questions that uh, we got from the students on this is uh, is there uh, you know how much can one be an authentic to be authentic uh, is there an example of an authentic being for Heidegger, or, or is there types of authentic beings, or could, mm. could is could, you know could somebody reach that standard? Do you think? Well, no, and this goes back to that notion, the the Levinasian where I, I started this conversation, where he he thinks about the difference of being between thinking about being as a verb or an adverb, and thinking about beings as nouns and adjectives, um, because someone who thinks that one who you could name authenticity, like one could uh, talk about a table or a chair and talk about the colour and the shape of it, is confusing, it's confusing being with beings. Uh, there isn't any objective description, external account of authenticity, because that would be to treat authenticity as though it was a thing, as though it was substantive, as though, you know, one could name it with a noun and describe it with adjectives. Right. So, so, so there, there is no, there is no being authentic in that sense for Heidegger. Yeah, you, know, you couldn't say oh, it's authentic to be a poet or a musician or you know wear black and smoke French cigarettes <laughs> in cafes. There's no no external description. Right. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a it's a yeah. I mean, he he does talk about this, doesn't he? It's a form of possibility more than anything, or it's a yeah. Yeah. Okay. So which which leads us to um some uh, another one of the uh, I guess parts of the existential analytic and being and time and one of the more another mm. one of the more famous uh, parts of it. And that's, uh, uh, you know, this language of anxiety and conscience mm. and guilt that Heidegger talks about. Um, so uh, it, to understand this, if we're looking at Heidegger, I mean, 
he's got this. He, I think he's got this sort of almost therapeutic account of anxiety. Uh, mm. And uh, and the question then remains: Is how can anxiety be something positive? Is it a positive emotion? Is it a positive mood? <laughs> I don't think it's positive for Heidegger. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I think the way to think about anxiety is to remember the way in which Heidegger distinguishes from fear. So fear as a mood is attached to an object in the world. So, you know, I'm fearful of the lion that's running towards me uh, because, uh, you know, I feel that it might kill me or attack me. The difference with anxiety is it doesn't have an object in that sense. I'm not anxious, Heidegger says, about this or that. I'm anxious about everything. And that's because for Heidegger, what, ang- what anxiety is revealing to me is my world. Not things in the world, not people in the world, but the world as the context in which my relationship to things and people takes place. And that's for the most part, of course, that world functions very smoothly. I get up in the morning, I have a cup of tea, I have a shower, I catch a train, I go to work, I teach, I catch a train back from work, I come home, I eat my tea, I go to bed, and so on, repeat. But sometimes things can happen to me that break that kind of circuit. And in that kind of moment, I'm thrown back upon my own being, and suddenly I might start questioning the very meaning of my existence. Well, Heidegger thinks that that, that, that moment begins with, a, with a, the feeling of anxiety. And he's particularly very interested in the phenomenological description that, that in anxiety, what's revealed to me is not something, but being, my being. Now, for the most part, Heidegger thinks that people who are anxious flee from this experience. Uh, I suppose because anxiety is not a positive uh, emotion, uh, and so you know, as he says, the phenomenologist must follow what the, per- the anxious person re- uh, flees away from. So he's particularly just interested in how the world emerges in that in that moment. And of course, what he wants to say about specifically about human being is what's at the heart of Dasein or human being is this notion of being in a world where this world isn't a thing or a place on the map. What is the, is the, uh, uh, it's very hard to put a word to it, but is the, is the context in which my life has a sense or meaning or purpose or goal or direction. Okay, yes, it's, it's really interesting because all, in, in a way, I'm, I'm going through these concepts as if they're separate, but they're all mm. really intimately linked in a way because, yeah. you know, the question of authenticity is, mm. is, uh, is revealed, I guess, for Heidegger. Mm. Through the question of anxiety, because as you say, anxiety reveals the world. It, it reveals the possibilities that are open to me, and mm. it reveals the world in which I can, I guess, uh, fail or succeed. Um, mm. um, so, is, is, do you think that's? Uh, do you think? I mean, like, is that that, that relationship between anxiety uh, is also something very distinct? I think in being in time, and that's how it relates to the question of death. I guess uh, is I mean is that do we have does Heidegger believe we have anxiety because we are anxious of death? I guess is my question to you. Yeah, I mean I I see what Heidegger is trying to say is that you know when he's saying that the, the self is a drama, one could fail to be oneself. Mm. Or, so you know the self isn't a description of an object like uh, green is a description of a green bottle, but the self is something one has one can be or fail to be. You know, when I, I speak to my uh, uh, parents of my students in the in the in the, the first year, my uh, parents are usually anxious that students have been stupid enough to, to choose philosophy. <laughs> that um, you know, I say I want my you know at the end of the course I want my students to have the courage to be. 
to be themselves. And that's what I understand that authenticity is. So authenticity, if you like, is is having the courage to follow through anxiety. You know, when in the in the section on anxiety, Heidegger talks about um, that, uh, you know, in, in most people when they're anxious, flee away from what shows itself in anxiety. And uh, the thing to do is to follow it. Then then authenticity is is following that. So it's not it's not an obsession about death as such. I mean, Heidegger is not uh, promoting suicide or he's not promoting some kind of morbid fascination with death. It's just how we're through in through uh, death or being towards death, to be more precise. The very nature of my being is revealed. Uh, and I see that as a way of as as for Heidegger that, you know, is uh, seizing the possibilities that are given or granted to you. Having the courage to choose choose one's existence, That's to choose the, to choose something, a possibility, and to and to commit oneself to it, rather than drifting in a kind of fog of a barely thought out or barely experienced possibilities that are simply there. So you know the way to give that concrete. You know, sometimes I speak to my students and they say, sometimes you're feeling that you want to just a conveyor belt. No, you just you go to school, you do your GCSEs, you do your air levels, you end up at university, then you go get a job, then you get a mortgage, then you have maybe have children and a car, and then you work, then you retire, then you're dead. Yeah, that convey that's the opposite of what Heidegger <laughs> means by authenticity. Now, you're just simply trundling through life. Okay, so there's what's really interesting to me about that is uh, I think it's not it's I mean it's it's implicit in being in time I think rather than mm. explicit and that's the question of courage because mm. it's not something he talks about uh, specifically I mean you can kind of see it maybe in the idea of resoluteness you know where he kind of follows Nietzsche the idea that sort of authenticity is or in the face of anxiety and death is a uh, I don't know I guess a, a type of tenacity or a type of resilience yeah I mean it's there it's there in the notion of resoluteness. You know, that's what what Heidegger means by resoluteness. I mean, the courage to be, because it's not. You know, it's that. It's that to, um, because of course, what Heidegger wants to say is is that most people uh, don't don't think about being a death, or if they do think about it, think about something that's you know is far off, or or maybe they're even you know fearful of death. But to to seize one's life for Heidegger is is to have the courage uh, to uh, face. What it is that's revealed in being towards death, which again for Heidegger was unique to human beings. He would argue that only human beings have a sense of their own mortality. So the story I give is, you know, it's a story by the American writer Selby Jr., Hubert Selby Jr., who was um, uh, quite a famous American writer and so famous now I've just immediately forgotten everything he's ever written. But the story he says is, you know, that he was dying of tuberculosis and uh, he went to hospital and the doctor said, you're dying. This was when he was in his 30s and he went home to his his, his uh, tiny room and lay on, lay on the bed. And he said he had this, what he called a spiritual experience. But what I, is what I understand what he's talking about is, is what Heidegger means by being towards death. And he said, I had this premonition on, of, uh, that I was lying on my own deathbed. And I looked, I looked back over my whole existence and I said, and I saw that I blew it. I hadn't done anything with my life. And in that very moment, so he's thinking about himself on the deathbed, in that very moment when I wish to live my whole life again and do something, I die in that very moment. And he said this was such a terrible experience. <laughs> he just said, I have to do something with my life. Uh, and that's what I understand about Heidegger means by resoluteness. And he said, I decided to become a writer. 
because I didn't have any, he says, I didn't have any other talents. I couldn't paint. I couldn't do anything. I, you know, I'd gone to, he'd gone to high school, but he hadn't gone to university. I knew I could write. So I just started writing, you know, and I became a writer by simply writing. And what I mean, a coach to be is he committed to it. He woke up every day and he wrote. And then he wrote, then destroyed everything he wrote, and then started again. The courage to be for Heidegger, resoluteness, is that is that kind of commitment to to a possibility. To doing, I guess, as well, yeah. Doing it, that he he did it. He didn't say, I'm going to become a writer mm-hmm. and think that's great. I'll just lie there and think I'm a fantastic writer. He wrote. Yeah, okay. At the beginning, you know, yeah. Okay, so um, uh, some other points uh, that are interesting um, in being in time uh, is uh, and that you sort of talk about in your book. Um, you, you, uh, one of the things you, you emphasise is the question of what Heidegger calls fallenness, fallenness, which I guess is a yeah. a type of inauthenticity. So it's the yeah. idea that we are always distracted and become fascinated mm-hmm. by objects and things in the world and Heidegger's worried about mm-hmm. if we, we turn ourselves into a thing... Um, one of the things that you point out, I think, uh, and I think you talk about this in relation to St. Augustine, and that's that you say mm. that fallenness, you say, you say, should not be understood theologically. Mm. Now, it's difficult, that, because it's, it's a very sort of a theological, or it's a theological-laden mm. term. So mm. I guess my question to you then is, is Being in Time a book without theology? Well, that's a very interesting question. There's no doubt that Heidegger uses the language of theology in being in time. You know, he talks, as you know, about guilt. Um, but he's, I think you have to understand that within the uh, hermeneutical context that we were talking about previously. In other words, he's using that theological language to uh, disturb our uh, philosophical prejudices. You know, he's using it as a way in which to uh, throw light upon our everyday experience of our own being. So he's not using theology in a dogmatic way. He's not making a theological statement. He's rather using some of the vocabulary, especially of St. Augustine and Kierkegaard, both of them who are, are kind of theological in a very kind of, I would say, a almost in the sense of outsiders, that he's using their kind of existential language as a way of uh, dislodging uh, more traditional philosophical categories or concepts that are getting in the way of our experience of being. Okay, yeah, so um, yeah. So it's, it's, I guess as part of that, what you were talking about earlier in, in terms of the method of phenomenology and hermeneutics, he's, he's mm. using hermeneutics to, to find uh, value in theological language. Yeah, because, you know... It, if you think about, you know, theological language, uh, you know, in certain aspects, uh, because theological language is is an expression of the experience of faith, it, it has that existential dimension within it. Not all theology, of course, because a lot of theology is captured by the very Greek metaphysics that Heidegger thinks has led to us forgetting the meaning of being. So certain aspects of theology would be would be attractive to Heidegger to to. Um, as as signposts to the kind of existential depth that he's trying to um, to get us to see. Because remember that Heidegger Heidegger thinks that Western philosophy has a too cognitive theoretical conception of being, including his teacher herself. So he had to find another vocabulary to to reveal this more concrete meaning of being that he was attempting to describe in being in time. And theology is just part of that toolkit. Right, and uh, I suppose, yeah, I mean, I know Heidegger would ex- hate to be uh, to be characterised this way. I mean, it is a type of, uh, uh, you know, 
he's asking what is the meaning of uh, how can one have meaning in a meaningless world or is a type of secular mm. theology I mean I know he would mm. hate hate that but there is there is this sense I think that he's he's, he's trying to show that like that death and finitude or our mortality mm. is mm. very much a phenomenon of life right and yeah. we, we get yeah, this we get this weird mix of life and death in his book mm. so mm. um it's uh, being in time. Therefore, is a book full of language of of possibility, transformation, becoming, and it's also mm. a book full of the language of uh, fallenness, anxiety, guilt, mm. and death, and negativity. Mm. Uh, mm. So, uh, one of the questions that that, uh, that 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 puts to us is: uh, Is there any place for hope then, uh, in regards to the structure of being in time? That's a very good question. I mean. I think Heidegger again and again stresses, and I, you know, I, I, I accept his, his gloss on this, that, that none of these concepts like anxiety, death, uh, guilt, fullness are to be understood negatively. Uh, and you know, what I would take Heidegger's word at that. They're not meant in a kind of, uh, negative manner. They're, they're for Heidegger simply, uh, revealing the kind of beings that we are in terms of our everydayness. So I think we have to be careful to to overemphasize negativity in in Heidegger. If the hope the hope in Heidegger, I think, is is um, is in terms of thinking about time. As you know, that that in what what is peculiar to human time for for Heidegger, and will be the clue for the meaning of being in general. Though he never got there, is that human beings are essentially. Um, Aim towards the future. You know, that, that human beings, as human beings, will constantly live ahead of ourselves in, into the into the future. Uh, so our past possibilities, uh, w- uh, which set the context of in which in w- the culture in which we exist, uh, we only seize upon these past possibilities through projecting them ahead of ourselves. You know, so a lot of my students, for example, were come to me and talk to me about you know how that. How uh, they came to philosophy because of the they were inspired by a teacher, and they were so so that's the past possibility, and uh, they were so inspired by the teacher that they want to be teachers themselves and inspire future future uh, students to be to be uh, equally uh, inspired by philosophy as they were. So they've taken up a past possibility, they've seized it in their present, and they've thrown ahead of it themselves into the future. So I would think if I, I would think in terms of if you were thinking about hope in Heidegger, you'd be thinking about this the precedence he places upon the future. Okay, okay. Um now uh, another thing you point out, um and I think it's probably not unrelated to the previous question, is that in being a time uh uh I mean Right. So I mean one of the things I always say to my students is that I mean and I mentioned it already, Heidegger's not you know, he's he's not prescriptive like he's not saying but he's, he's not saying be authentic or he's not saying how mm. to be authentic or he's not telling you what to do effectively. Um, mm. So what I'm, I'm wondering is, uh, and in relation to you bring this up, I think, uh, in your book, is the is how can we configure the question of ethics and being in time? Uh, mm. Can we say that being in time is a is a, an ethical work or can we say it's a non-ethical work? Um, I mean, Heidegger definitely, uh, his own self-interpretation is that it's morally neutral. Yeah. Um, so and I think, yeah, and like yeah I think that that might be up to debate. Uh, one thing is very interesting about if you read the kind of lectures that predate Heidegger's being in time, 
And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's actual genesis is that Heidegger had to publish a book to get a job. Uh, we all know about that. <laughs> but, uh, but it is kind of cobbled together from lectures because and that's not in a, not a terrible indictment of Heidegger. He's, he thought that teaching was the primary function of a philosopher, not publication. But, uh, that he, uh, he, uh, he, it's made up of a lot of his lecture notes. And in fact, some of his lectures are a little bit more easier to read than being in time. What was clear if you go back to Heidegger's lectures that he was giving before being in time is that, is that being in time in some sense is a reworking of Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. And that is, you could think, think of it as a way of thinking about rethinking the Aristotelian distinction between, uh, possibility and actuality, uh, dunamis and anagaya. And that, um, and especially in the way that that's reformulated in uh, Nicomachean ethics. But of course, what's interesting is that when Heidegger re- is using that kind of Aristotelian language to rethink uh, ontology, he strips it of any kind of moral or ethical uh, meaning. So Heidegger would say, you know, it has nothing to do with morality. You know, it's not, it's not, you're not more moral if you're authentic or less moral if you're inauthentic. These are ontological. Uh, categories. However, I'm not absolutely convinced by that myself, that I think there is an ethical dimension in Heidegger. Uh, and it, it, it be, does become increasingly troubling as one works one's way through the book, especially there might be questions you might want to ask about how he describes the relationship to others and being with and also the more troubling sections at the end of the work when he starts talking about uh, destiny, uh, fate, and the people, and the necessity for leaders. Uh, and then one might also worry about how Heidegger's language and being and time leaches into his, his directly political uh, 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 discourses around the time he was rector at the university. As you know, um, he mm. was a Nazi party. Uh, member, and in fact, didn't give up. Didn't give up being a Nazi Party member till quite late. Even though his his uh, self portrayal is that he somehow turned away from Nazism in the thirties, but I you know there isn't. There's very little evidence for that. And uh, that is that is that is uh, profoundly troubling. I mean, I think one of the works. I mean, I mean, one of the one of you've written quite a bit on um, on Emmanuel Levinas, uh, mm. um, the Jewish philosopher, and. Uh, mm. He, he he had some very specific criticisms of being in time, I think, didn't he? He did. I mean, he always said that he that every that or every you know that being in time is one of the masterworks of Western philosophy, and that everybody should read it. So so Levinas wasn't somebody who thought that oh you should not you know some people do, which I just think is stupid. That you know you shouldn't read being in time because Heidegger was a Nazi. I just I don't know that just seems to me completely meaning, uh, meaningless. Um, but, you know, he had certain problems with it. So he, I would say he accepts um, Heidegger's concrete phenomenology, that phenomenology is a method in which one could describe what it is to be uh, human, to live in a world, to worry about oneself and others. I don't think Heidegger, Levinas rejects that. And uh, totality, infinity, in some sense, mirrors being in time. Uh, his, his, he's got two issues with Heidegger, really. He thinks that there's an overemphasis in Heidegger on work. So... So Heidegger's description of the everyday world in being in time, uh, which of course Heidegger is saying is, is uh, universal, so it's supposed to be a description of what it is for every human being to work to be. Uh, Levinas says it, it looks very much like a world of work, 
you know, hammering stuff and making stuff. And, yeah. you know, it's a pretty serious Germanic world. <laughs> and, you know, and Levinas wants to contrast that with, you know, just sitting around and having a beer. Well, you know, why do we have to keep doing stuff all the time? Uh, why do we always have to project in Heidegger's world? Uh, why do we always all be trying to achieve stuff? So for Heidegger, but that's one part of Heidegger. So he wonders whether, you know, Heidegger's description of concrete existence is, is as full as he makes out. Uh, uh, and that's a whole debate then about the whole transcendental nature of being in time, which which has the ambition that is describing what it is for any human being to be. Uh, and the other part of it is the Heidegger's descriptions of uh, the relation to others. Now, Levinas' criticism is quite specific here, is that in Heidegger, my relation to others is part of my own relation to myself. So the relation to myself comes first in Heidegger's description. Right. I only relate to others through how I relate to myself. So when it comes, when, the, when there's a description about inauthentic and un, unauthentic relationship to others, then how Heidegger describes that is really to do with my attitude towards those others. You know, do I free those others to their own possibilities? Then I'm authentic. If I dominate others, then I'm inauthentic. So, so for Levinas, the, the, the description of others in, in, uh, in, uh, being in time is always from the perspective of, uh, um, uh, the self or the individual who is in some sense facing the meaning of their own being. But what if, for Levinas, Levinas's question is, what if the other, rather than being part of my world, and a part that I ever accept or reject, what if the other is something that actually interrupts my world from the outside? In that sense, the other almost has the place that anxiety and death have in being in time. It's something that shocks and interrupts my world. Now, the, the big difference then between Levinas and, and Heidegger is he wants to say that that's the thing that breaks up and, and intervenes in, in, in my kind of my world, which is essentially for Heidegger, sorry for Levinas, a selfish, egotistical world, that, that, the, that, the, that the other intervenes uh, ethically rather than ontologically. Okay. You know, uh, for, for Levinas, there's a kind of solipsism in being in time. And however much that solipsism gets, you know, bigger, like a bubble, it, it, it includes everything within itself, even death is included within uh, Darzain's own sense of being. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the I mean, Levinas is effectively accusing Heidegger of what Heidegger accused Husserl of, you know, of that sort of you know, being solipsistic, I am all that is the case, yes. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can only understand the world yeah, in terms I, of myself, yeah. Um, yeah if, you, if you agree with he Levinas, what you're essentially agreeing with is Levinas says Heidegger didn't go far enough. Yeah. yeah. That, that, and, and that for he Levinas, is saying about Heidegger is that being is still is too personal in Heidegger. Mm -hmm. You know, when Levinas talks about being being neutral and anonymous, he wants to say that you know at least in being in time, being is still seen you know it's still seen as you as you said right at the beginning in terms of je meinica mindness. Okay, so it, now can I uh, sort of coming to a close? I guess I've got a couple of more questions for you. Even if there is a lack of that ethical prescription in Heidegger's philosophy, and it might might, might be deficient in that. Do you think then that being in time is still relevant? Is it, a, is it still a relevant book? Yeah, I, th I think it's, it's incredibly relevant. I mean, I think it's incredibly relevant because the very issues that Heidegger was, is talk, was talking about in the 1920s haven't changed in any way whatsoever. And in fact, maybe have even got worse. 
One could only imagine Levinas, uh, sorry, Heidegger's horror if he'd ever heard about people uh, thinking that it was a meaningful and useful project to uh, to um, to understand literature by taking brain scans. So there are people who are being funded in universities at the moment who think that uh, if you, you know if you were trace the electrical activity in somebody's brain, you're saying something meaningful about James Joyce's Ulysses. I mean, how do you go to think, you know, this is just, it's this kind of nonsense that, uh, that to me, the existential analytics is all about, that, you know, human beings, uh, fundamentally, the meaning of life is not reducible to an external objective scientific description. But we increasingly live in an age where we think that human beings are just like kind of sophisticated computers, machines. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that uh, my students notice um, uh, are the things that at least they find intuitive is, uh, you know, Heidegger's uh, work on technology, which is not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily overt in being in time, but uh, in that, you know, he talks about, uh, well, I mean, just the other day we talked about the, the, the essay, The Thing, uh, I think Heidegger's lecture in 19... 19- 50, I think it was, and in that he's talking about, you know, this the sort of flatness that technology brings about, the abolition mm. of time, the abolition of distance. You know, we we're inhabiting an increasing culture of efficiency and speed, and uh, mm. I guess uh, I guess he has some degree of relevance there as well. Do you think? I do. Yes, I do. I mean, you know, I think that you know perhaps now. From the vantage point that we that we stand, that increasing to me, I I increasingly see Heidegger in terms of philosophy of science. Not you know that he's offering a new way of thinking about science as a method, but that he's he's being in time offers us a way to think about what the limits of scientific discourse mm. are. And you know, in an age that's dominated by science, where science itself has become kind of like a religion, and we think that science has an answer to every human question. Uh, Understanding how it is that uh, how our, how it is that our lives appear to us, how that my life is an issue and problem for me, and something that I I have to face, is not a question that's ever going to be answered by by a doctor or a scientist. Mm. It's not it's not available in that way. And you know, this of course, as you said, it becomes more pressing for Heidegger's later work on technology, but it's already there, I think, in in uh, being and time. I also think that Heidegger's, you know, uh, descriptions, phenomenology of everyday descriptions are powerful and, and ring true to me, ring true to my own experience of myself and my world. Uh, and, you know, the, the distinction, for example, between presence to hand and ready to hand, uh, that, you know, objects disappear in their use is also, I think, a very fundamental true description of human experience and how he's just trying to dislodge a kind of over theoretical conceptual objectivizing relationship to the world that of course he sees having its origin in, in Plato primarily that you know this is that and trying to re- retrieve a more fundamental uh, expression of life seems to me still to be uh, persuasive and convincing phenomenologically so if I however say- you have know, a critical I might be like Levinas about certain aspects of it I still think that thrust is is mm. is correct well he says this famous thing doesn't he, he says uh I think this is right. He says, scientists, oh, sorry, not scientists, uh, science doesn't think. Uh, mm. do, you think do you think that's harsh <laughs> on scientists? Yeah, well, <laughs> he's, it is a bit harsh. I mean, he didn't say scientists don't think. Yes. So I think that that's very important. 
but you know that that really comes down to what he says in being in time that sciences are regional ontologies, not general. So you know, science has to take for granted that the the uh, beings or entities that it's studying exist. If a scientist starts questioning whether uh, electrons exist, then they're not going to do science anymore. They're going to be a philosopher. So very, he, he means that science doesn't think in that sense. It just simply has to accept the, the boundaries and limitations and rules of its discourse, or it's not really going to get any funding from any government anytime soon. Nobody now, there are problems when science gets into a crisis, and some people think that physics is in a crisis at the moment, that you know scientists don't think enough. It's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, he's not—he's not usually someone who's thought of as a philosopher of science, as we as we would call mm. it. But he's—he's—he's he's, mm. he's clearly got a lot to say about it. Yeah, I mean, I—I I see a lot of similarities, for example, between Thomas Kuhn uh, and and uh, Heidegger's views about science. I mean, you know, uh, of course, Kuhn didn't have read Heidegger, but I mean, I think there are great similarities between them. Uh, and of course, Kuhn is seen as very. Very, although he's controversial, you know, he's seen as a very respectable uh, philosopher of science. And I would place Heidegger, the kind of critical uh, relationship to science, uh, thinking about science in terms of much bigger, bigger cultural context. And, you know, and then in that sense, he's also similar to Fire Arvind. But, you know, so uh, I think that it's, uh, you know, if we live in an age where, you know, we think that neuroscience tells us what love is, then things have got really bad. <laughs> <laughs> we should all go back to read Being in Time again. So and, very relevant. Know, people should be teaching Being in Time in universities to remind us that, you know, neurons don't tell you anything about love. Okay. So uh, I've just got a couple of more questions, two more questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, uh, outside of Being in Time, is there any other texts by Heidegger that you like? I mean, is there any, I guess, personal favourites that you might have or that you find compelling? Yeah. I find, you know, this, the, the origins of work of art is something I, I keep going back to several so many times not that I, I, I understand it uh, but then again uh, Heidegger is very difficult to understand uh, but, I, but I think that you know that I, I, I think that the origin work of art is very important I suppose for me in ways of trying to understand uh, literature or, uh, or art in general uh, from a kind of in terms of being uh, world revealing but how also that uh, resistance to interpretation or meaning is intrinsic to the work of art, not 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 merely an external barrier. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and that that goes in, I suppose, how I got interested in uh, Blanchard, oh, Maurice yeah. Blanchard. Uh, okay, so what about uh, yourself? Um, I quite like I quite like the things. Yeah, it's a great essay. Really, I have I have started to read a lot more of those technology, yeah. what I call technology essays. Yeah. Well, the question concerning technology is a really good essay, I think, but uh, mm. it's uh, it's it's quite difficult, I think, for anybody. Mm. Um, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think that if anyone wanted to, you know, uh, wanted to have a look at Heidegger or interested in another one of his texts, I think that that little essay, the thing, is a really interesting yeah. way of, uh, of of going about it because it, it brings together all his themes. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. What I like about both those essays, the thing and the question, they start quite slowly. And you kind of follow Heidegger, and they're, and they're quite simple in some sense because they're there for general audience. Well, and then they get madder and madder. Yeah. <laughs> By the end of it, you think, "What the hell is he talking about?" <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So, in, in in that regard, then, do you have any any advice for uh, for people who are curious about Heidegger? This is our last question. Uh, is there any advice for people who are curious about Heidegger or want to engage with his texts? <laughs> I would say read Being in Time like a novel. <laughs> 
like a novel. Yeah, don't don't anguish over every sentence and think you have to understand every word in every sentence. Uh, you know, just 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 read it through. If if you become interested in it and it, it uh, inspires you, then you know maybe go back to sections that particularly particularly grabbed your attention. But you know, it can be soul destroying if you feel that you must understand everything utterly clearly and must grasp everything in this detail to progress. We don't we don't normally we don't watch films like that. We don't read books like that. So why why do we think we must read philosophy like that? You know, sometimes I think we expect too much from ourselves. Okay, I think that's a that's a very nice line to end this interview on. Thank you very much, Will, for being with us today. No problem. It was a pleasure. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by Il Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app.